that confession in the first part is what we call a palpable confession. You can feel it. Our sins, they are many. You don't need to gather at a church service like this one to be told that your sins are many. But the second part of that confession is imperative. First part's palpable. Second part is absolutely essential. His mercy is more. Is it true that where my sin abounds, his mercy and grace superabound? Is it true? We gather at a moment like this, we open his word, and we comfort and we assure ourselves that the mercy and the grace of God supersedes our sinning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 8. We're walking our way through the Exodus narrative as it is part of the Pentateuch. And today we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 8 and verse number 20. And we'll read through chapter 9 and verse number 7. So would you join with me in listening as I read the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 8 and verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up in the morning, present yourselves to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your house and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses, throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, Will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness, sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh says, I'll let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from your servants, from his people. Tomorrow, only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, 
that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. This concludes the reading of the word of the Lord. Mighty bless it in our time together this morning. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. For the rest of us, we walk through these punches. You remember Josh so well last week explained that a word picture, a sort of visual of what it means to be plagued, is what we might see as punches. There are these blows that are being thrust by God against the people, the land, Pharaoh, any God that would oppose Yahweh. And so we walk through these punches. Covering today the next two, we've had a lot of conversation. Josh shared some of that with you last week. How many do we take at a time? Uh, How do they divide out? Well, today they divide in two. And I don't know why, but they do. And that's the part we're going to take for us this morning. The plagues. How many are there? Here's a hint. Okay, there's ten. Do you remember them? Can anyone stand right now and say what they are? You couldn't? Let me help you. B, maybe, maybe I can do it without my paper. Be forever grateful for lasagna because haggis looks definitely disgusting. There they are. Now, some of you are not going to hear anything else I say because you're going to go through that 10-word acronym and say, is that really all 10? Be forever, blood, frogs, gnats, grateful, for, flies, lasagna, livestock, because haggis looks definitely disgusting, okay? If it helps. You think? You don't even know what haggis is. That's okay. So it might help. We are walking through that list of 10 plagues that are being explained as a revelation of who God is. You remember several weeks ago I said, we need to know the kind of king Pharaoh was only because it helps us understand the kind of God Yahweh is. Pharaoh's an obstinate king. He is an an unbelieving, defiant king of Egypt. And it's helping us all the while See the conversation, see the narrative unfold, and understand the kind of God, our God, Yahweh is. You remember back in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is God that I should do what he says? 
He says, I don't even know the name you've just used for this deity you hold to. We have our gods, and that's not one of them. But now as this story unfolds, God is making himself known to Pharaoh, to the people of the land, and as we have this word preserved for us, he's making himself known to us. Now here's what's happening. God is making himself truly known. It is reasonable for you to say, I can't totally know God. My finite understanding cannot totally know God. That's correct. But please don't allow doubt to rest on your heart that you can't truly know God. The fact that God is being truly revealed here is evident in the fact that God keeps performing miracles, plagues, and then preserving Pharaoh's hardness so that more plagues can come. We might say, Pharaoh, what are you doing? The water of the Nile, the life-giving body of water has turned into blood. Everything in it is dying. People are digging holes along the banks trying to reach fresh water. Just let the people go. One and done. But God is truly revealing himself. There's more to be known by Pharaoh in Egypt about God. And so the parables continue. The language of these punches, sometimes we read at the conclusion of a plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then sometimes we read, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He becomes a passive agent in denying the instruction of God. It's like boxing. When one fighter is dominating the other, and he is landing punch after punch, but the recipient of the blows is against the the rail. He's against the ropes. And so he's not falling. It might help you to understand that what God has done is masterfully place Pharaoh with his back against the ropes and continues to land one dominating sovereign blow after another. Why doesn't Pharaoh just fall? Because God put him against the ropes because there was another blow for us to learn about. There was another attribute, there was another element of God to be truly known. So the title of my sermon right now is Revelation, truly enough. I understand we might be tempted and rightly to say, I can't know him totally. He is God. Everything about him is boundless and infinite. But we can know him truly. And that's what we're receiving from his word in this narrative of Exodus. Sometimes we've seen in the plagues God making himself known to Egypt in judgment. And at the same time, making himself known to Israel in redemption. To one group, he is favoring and blessing. And to another group, he is cursing and condemning. He is preserving the process and displaying his rule over everything. So today, we will look at these two plagues, these two punches two blows are going to land in the land of Egypt. The plague of flies. The plague of flies reminds us that our God rules over life because life is going to be multiplied. Creation is going to be magnified in a way that is unpleasant and unwelcome. And then we'll look at a second plague for us this morning, the plague of the livestock dying 
God will rule over life and death. Let's look then at these two and the revelation of our God. Let me pray as we study. Father God, open our eyes that we will see the revelation of you truly in your word. Oh, the despair of so many people who have become familiar theoretically with the existence of God. But not truly knowing Him. So I pray this morning that as that is true of our field of ministry, it is true in some way in our own hearts. I pray that your word would minister and that we would see truly the revelation of our God. In Christ Jesus' name we pray to you. Amen. First, a plague of life multiplied. In chapter 8, verse 20 through 32, we have a plague that represents God showing power, multiplying life. First, in verse 20 through 23, the plague is announced. Look at the way God says, go to Pharaoh and let him know what's coming. Moses, at this point, has some experience in the process of confronting Pharaoh. Instructions are limited. Go at this time, while he's doing that thing, now he's walking out to the water, and he sees Moses. Just, just, just pause just for a second. The king is walking out to the water that apparently is returning to water, and he sees Moses come walking up on the bank. Oh, thought it was just going to be a normal day in the kingdom. God says, go to him in the morning while he's walking out to the water and say this, let my people go so that they may worship me. You remember back in chapter 7, verse 16, Moses referred to God there as Yahweh. Here, or here he refers to God as Yahweh. There he said, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Pharaoh is needing less and less information about who's giving the instruction because he's having these interactions. Oh, yeah, I remember Yahweh, the God of Israel. Well, now just Yahweh. The Egyptians receive a threat here. If you don't obey, there will be a huge infestation of swarming insects. So enormous that the text says, even the ground where you stand, literally, you will not be able to put your foot on the ground without stepping on flies. Significantly, though, in this plague, we have the start of something new. God shows division or partiality between two groups of people in the land. God says, there's going to be flies everywhere, except Goshen. Where my people are, there won't be flies there. They're going to be kept from the burden of this plague. The flies are going to know a border. God's distinction between his people and those who don't belong to him is shown by this control over nature. Flies are swarming everywhere. Insects cannot naturally discriminate boundaries. But these plagues are proven to not be supernatural phenomena, but nature turned on its head. Nature 
ruled by its creator. So verse 24, the plague does come, and it is devastating. The plague is devastating. The Egyptian people don't have screens. They can't run inside and get out of the plague or get relief. The windows are wide open as doors open and close. Egyptians are living covered in flies everywhere. The Bible says to the extent that the land was ruined by the flies. People couldn't eat without ingesting flies. They couldn't sleep without the feeling of flies crawling all over them. They couldn't work, having to swap flies away. Couldn't see their task through these swarms of flies. Their skin is swelling and irritated from bites. The land is ruined by the flies. Verse 25, Pharaoh makes this sort of concession. This is a point where Pharaoh looks like he begins to weaken and says, okay, okay, if what you want to do is worship, most of our Bibles say serve, which is synonymous. Serving God and worshiping God are the same idea. If what you want to do is serve your God, then go ahead and make your sacrifices right here. Don't go anywhere, just make sacrifices here. And Moses say, no, we're not going to make sacrifices here. Look at verse 26 and 27. Moses rejects the offer. He said, what God has called for is not a religious holiday, but an exodus. Moses knew well that all the way back in chapter 3, verse 8, God had said that he was going to rescue the people from the land of Egypt, bring them up out of the land into a good spacious land flowing with milk and honey to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. Not just give some religious tolerance in Egypt. So Moses says to Pharaoh, we can't offer our sacrifices here. First reason he gives, he's negotiating with Pharaoh, and he says, our sacrifices are an abomination to these people. We would sacrifice a lamb and sheep, and these are an abomination to the Egyptians. He says, secondly, to perform open sacrifices right here would be an offense to the people and put us at risk. And then God had not called the people for some sort of religious holiday, but for Exodus. So Moses says, we can't. We can't take your concession. You must let us leave. Then Pharaoh makes this second concession, verse 28 and 29. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. Only offer sacrifices without going too far away. Obviously, Moses is suspicious. He says back to Pharaoh, you have to be sure not to break your word. Don't act deceitfully again. So he's obviously suspicious. You're going to let us leave the boundary of Egypt? Yep, yep, just right outside, just on the edge. Don't go too far. Now, Moses could have understood. And I don't know. I don't know at this point how Moses is processing this concession. Moses might have thought, all right, this is a way for Pharaoh to save face. Pharaoh can't stand up and say, we have no answer to the authority of the God of the Hebrews. We are powerless. He can't say, 
All right, you can go. We lose. You win. Now you people go out there. Where would the allegiance of his people be if he said such a thing? So maybe Moses thinks, well, by giving us this holiday away from the land, maybe, maybe this is Pharaoh's way of saving face. I don't know what Moses expects. But Pharaoh says this to Moses. And this is a unique expression. Pharaoh says to Moses, go ahead and plead for me. Verse 28. This plague had somehow affected Pharaoh personally. In a way that the previous three hadn't. And Moses says, okay, I will plead for you. And tomorrow, the flies will go away. I would just say one thing as a teaser for something I'm going to say in a moment. The timing of granting relief is pretty significant. And I'll say more about that in just a second. Moses here says, tomorrow, the flies are going to leave. Pharaoh, however, in verse 30 and 32, through 32, breaks his promise. Sounds a lot like chapter 8, 12 through 15, but listen to 30 through 32. So Moses went in chapter 8 from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did, as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from the people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Moses prays. God does what Moses had said to Pharaoh would happen. The plague would come, and then the plague would leave. But Pharaoh's stubborn heart refuses to honor his promise. By this time, it should be clear to the reader that because God was controlling the heart of Pharaoh, the people should not expect him to act naturally. When God controls a heart, it acts in extraordinary ways. That is true both in defiance and rebellion. How could a person who had given themselves away from the worship of God be so reckless and do so much self-harm? How can a person who seemed they would never submit to the authority of a holy God display such radical transformation? It becomes obvious that we have to be careful not to expect anything from Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh is being controlled, in this case, contrary to what would be reasonable. Just let the people go. We see that God brings a plague that displays his sovereign rule over life. Pharaoh hardens himself and says, no, I will not relent. I will not submit to your instructions. And then God brings the next plague, which is a display of God's sovereign rule over death. God's sovereign rule over death. Look at verses 1 through 4, and there we see, in chapter 9, the plague announced. 
a plague that the livestock are going to die. This account begins with Moses being sent to Pharaoh in his court now, inside, with a demand and a warning. He says this, let my people go so that they may serve me, God says through Moses. If you refuse to let them go, if you continue to hold them back, the land of the Lord will bring, or the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague. None of the other plagues are announced as being from the hand of the Lord. We, of course, know that they are. But this is an expression of escalation. We're, we're moving somewhere. Reader, you know we're moving to 10. The hand of the Lord is here. And if you don't do this, it will be a terrible plague. Verse 4 not only emphasizes again the difference between Egypt and Israel with regard to the destruction that would happen, but it announces death for the first time. I mean, sure, at the relief of the plague of the frogs or the gnats or the flies, even the blood in the water, the Bible tells us that the fish in the, in the, Red sea, or in the, uh, on the um, Nile River had died. So there is death as a result of the plague, but this is the first plague that at its heart is going to be a death sentence. And again, reader, we're moving toward the tenth. The plague is a plague of the death of domesticated animals, of, of livestock, of the herds, of the flocks, Domesticated animals are treasured, a treasured asset in Bible times. Having a pet, think about this with me. I understand culturally, we tend to think of like pet ownership as something that's comforting, it's, it's nice, it's, it's more ab- about something we enjoy or delight in, but think about this. Um, I don't even know if I can express this because this is such an anomaly in kind of Western culture. The ownership of a pet, what does it say? Okay, in most times in human history, people were very burdened by the need to just take care of themselves, right? Like the Lord's Prayer, give me today's bread, right? We're a long way from that. We're a long way from that. We're, we're praying today, Lord, retirement is looming over me 40 years away. Give me comfortable retirement. And so we don't really understand the whole living day-to-day thing. But if you're living day-to-day and then you're like, I'm living so confidently day-to-day, I'll take on an animal to take care of just to prove the measure of my comfort. I can feed numerous mouths. So the ownership of a pet, especially in ancient time, kind of indicated a level of comfort to the owner. I can do this. I can... I can add pleasures that even might cost me something because I can handle it. So the death of animals is significant, still significant to us. The plague is devastating. Look at verses 5 and 6. God sets a time for a localized event that 
that doesn't have a, par- a parallel in Scripture that I can think of. The expression, the Lord set a time. It's a contrast. Look back to chapter 8, verse 9. Just look up. It was last week, but look back up to chapter 8, verse 9. There was that. <laughs> it's, it's odd to me, right? Okay, we'll get rid of the frogs. When do you want it to happen? Tell me, when, when do you want the frogs to go away? Uh, yeah, we use the expression ASAP, make the frogs away. How is it that the messenger of God says to Pharaoh, you pick the time. Why don't you, Pharaoh, feel like you're still in control a little bit. Because it won't be long, and you won't feel that way anymore. So for this one, you say. Okay, you, then, okay, tomorrow, got it. And he does. Now we're moving our way through. Remember the, the timing of the thing? First, God lets Pharaoh say, I want it to go away this time. Then Moses says, okay, you want me to plead to God? Tomorrow the flies will go away. Now the death of the livestock, the Lord's going to do it, The Lord's going to decide when it starts, and the Lord's going to decide when it ends. And the revelation of God truly is falling on Pharaoh, on Egypt, being known to us that God will absolutely rule. So the plague is devastating. Verse 6. God does as he says. He keeps his word. The timing that he had announced... The Egyptian livestock die. Israel livestock are untouched. There is a translation choice. Translation choices are hard. Aren't you glad you don't have to make translation choices? Talked to a young guy yesterday, a seminary graduate, who's debating. He wants to go into language study. He wants to become a lifetime student of Bible languages at either, uh, um, well, I can't remember now, TEDS. But what's TEDS stand for? Trinity, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or at Wheaton. And he wants to go in, and he he told me this. And the look on my face must have said what I thought of that choice. This was great. (laughs) Can you imagine, though, having to be the one to say, okay, this Hebrew word in English means there's not one. I remember my dad grew up in Brazil and spoke Portuguese. And I remember as a kid, I was entertained by going to my dad and saying, hey, what's the Portuguese word for this? And I was sure he was lying when he would say, there isn't a Portuguese word for that. Stop it. If you don't know it, just tell me. Everybody knows there's words for other words. What's the... English word for all the Egyptian livestock died. Well, that's hard work. Here's why it's important for us to know that it's hard work. Because the 10th plague is coming, right? And what's going to happen on the 10th plague? All of the oldest man and beast are going to die. Well, there's no beast left. 
They were all killed on this plague. I want you to understand that there's not a contradiction in the Bible. You shouldn't think, oh, this whole story is a fabrication. No, the word all is hard to translate. When we read the account of the seventh plague, the Egyptian livestock, since they are mentioned as being in danger in plague seven, this is due simply to the fact that the Hebrew word call, usually translated all, we, we think of the word all as every, meaning instead all sorts of, or all over the place. Literally, this plague strikes Egypt and there are dead animals all over the place, except Israel, or the Israel camp. In this verse, in verse 7, Pharaoh sets out to investigate. Go see. I mean, it's obvious our livestock have died. They're dead all over the place. There are dead animals all over, large animals. Go see if that's true in Goshen. And he sends investigators. They scurry away, and they come back and say, no, not a single one. Not a single one? Now, let me, let me just add a, a teaser. Not only has God killed the livestock of the Egyptians, but is it possible that he didn't allow any single event of livestock death to happen on that day? It is possible. What would one or two or three of the normal livestock deaths that happen have said to the investigation? Well, yeah, it happened there and it happened here, just a lot more here, but still there. So it's okay. God didn't really do what he said he was going to do. Is it possible that God did not allow a single death? Maybe. Pharaoh's investigation leads to clarity that God had done exactly what he said he was going to do when he said he was going to do it, and not a single Israelite animal had died. God was in control. And the Bible tells us in verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. He receives another devastating blow, falls back against the ropes, and stands on his feet. God was in control of how Pharaoh would respond to each blow. The heart of the king is always in the hand of God. Let me say a quick word about this week. That promise about God remains true on Tuesday. I was talking to the staff pastors the other day. As you know, my, my prayer for the results of Tuesday is twofold. This midterm election is twofold. If the election outcome doesn't go the way you had wanted, that you not be overwhelmed with despair. What will happen now? That was our hope. Or my prayer also is the other way. What if it does go the way you had wanted? And you think, yes, we're saved. I pray that you be saved from that. I pray 
that you not be tempted to trust in horses or chariots, but in the Lord. The heart of the king, the heart of senators and governors, is in the hand of God. However, oftentimes, kings, people, don't like God. Pharaoh hates God. Pharaoh hates God. Why does Pharaoh hate God? There are three things about God here that Pharaoh hates. The first one is God judges the wicked. God says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him what I said. Tell him I gave instruction, and if he doesn't do it, there will be punishment. Pharaoh hates that. I don't want to have to do what you say, and you better not judge me for it. God judges the wicked, and Pharaoh hates him for it. Secondly, God seems to have favorites. If you're living in Goshen, don't you walk, like maybe there's a little, uh, in the Bible it's called a, uh, a wadi, or a, 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 a tell, a, a, no, I'm getting, a, a little body of water, a creek. <laughs> there's a little creek. Don't you walk to the edge of the little creek in Goshen on the other side, and there's just this wall of black flies? God rules over his creatures and sends them to plague Egyptians, but not Israel. Pharaoh hates that. Pharaoh everywhere, including the palace chambers, can smell the death of Egyptian animals, but not Israel's animals. Pharaoh hates that. The problem is that is a reoccurring common theme throughout Bible, the Bible. God rescuing one while judging another. God loving Jacob but hating Esau before they're born. God calling some his sheep and others goats. God preparing for some a place with streets of gold and others a place with lake of fire. Pharaoh hated that a sovereign God was allowed to show partiality. And Pharaoh hates that there is a God that he can't control. Pharaoh hates that God does what he says he's going to do regardless of Pharaoh's agreement to it. Pharaoh hates God. Pharaoh hates the God of the Bible Can we use that as an example for us to learn a lesson? Are there things about God that we uh, despise, reject, or aren't uncomfortable with? God is truly revealing himself in the Exodus. And the reader can get into this and say, oh, yeah, I don't think so. Not for me. Maybe just an, an objection to who God is. I wonder about your heart, Christian. 
real Christian. I wonder if you look at the revelation of God truly and go, I like the version in my mind more than the version in these pages. The God that I have really come to care about just doesn't fit with this story. So I would just give us a word of caution to not respond to the revelation of God the way hard-hearted Pharaoh is, but to say, this is God. Perfect in holiness. As we go, God truly revealed to us patiently revealing again and again himself. The revelation of who God is is imperative because life presents struggles that require the true God of the Bible. And it's essential that we see him for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be in his word. Let's pray. Father, as we see your hand ruling and bringing calamity and death and plague. You are truly a God of awe and splendor. And the same hand that strikes down scores of livestock in the land is the hand that lifts and carries and comforts us in our grieving. Who you truly are is is who we totally need. Thank you, God, for the passage for the instruction. We pray that your spirit would minister this truth to us and cause us not just to be hearers, but to be doers of this word, to walk by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and we'll sing together.